Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews once again this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. Our focus will be on verses 14 through 16. However, these verses are part of a a larger argument made by the writer, uh, referring back to the time uh, just before Joshua and during Joshua's time with Israel when they, by disobedience and disbelief, were not allowed to enter the promised land. And so we come to this passage, which gives us comfort. In fact, Martin Luther said it well, after terrifying us, the writer now comforts us. And that's what we have before us, some of the most comforting words in the whole New Testament. Hear God's word, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, for the comfort of the scriptures. Lord, I pray this morning for your people here gathered, for myself, as we again consider your word, that we would be changed as a result of what uh, we are exposed to here today, your living and active and sharp word. We pray this in Christ's name, for his glory. Amen. While I am active, obviously, as a citizen and a biblical citizen, I'm active in the political process, meaning I take every opportunity I can to vote, I want to be honest in saying that I'm not altogether enthused about the state of political affairs in our country. And I don't mean anything personal to any one person, just that it has come so far away from what the original intent for elected office was. If you remember when the country began and reading your history, depending on what history you read, uh, you'll see that uh, eventually, or uh, uh, At the beginning, it was supposed to be that people had regular vocations, and they would take a time to serve as an elected official. They would go back to their vacations, their their vocations after. They're on a vacation while they're there. And they would do this maybe for one term, two terms. That was just the way it was devised. And our first presidents were actually businessmen, or they were workers, and they would serve, and they would go back to a related field. And as time has gone on, you have seen what has happened. And now you take a major in college just to be a politician. I mean, how can it be that there is a way for someone like that to relate with those of us who consider ourselves regular citizens? In fact, of the seven presidents that have served while I've been alive, all of them have come from some serious wealth. Does that mean a rich person can't be a good president? No, definitely not. But don't kid me when you say you can feel my pain. Okay, it's just not... Some people have been in Congress longer than I've been alive. A lot has happened in that 33 years. A lot has changed. Yet the constant message you still hear is how they're here for you. They relate with you. This is not the case anymore. But what is amazing, what is amazing, and what transcends all the different cultures and all the different forms of government that are there, what is amazing is that our Lord Jesus can say, can say and mean and honestly embody one who sympathizes with us. One who genuinely has empathy for your human experience. He doesn't just say it from some political pulpit. 
He says it with all the honesty that God has. And he is truth. That he is able to sympathize with you, every one of you, from the smallest to the oldest. No matter what your situation in life is, he can go into any culture and say that he can sympathize with the human condition. This is why the church of Christ transcends all these things, transcends all countries, all governments, all people. Because our Savior is one who has been tempted in every respect like us, yet without sin. We're not the bearers of a high priest who doesn't understand us. No, he completely and utterly sympathizes with us, his people. This text declares that he is our great high priest. Our great high priest. Let's analyze this for a moment this morning. Why is Jesus called our great high priest, and how does it matter? Why is he called this, and how does it matter? Now, you may know that the book of Hebrews, among all the New Testament books, speaks the most about Jesus as our high priest. Now, the scriptures are laden with his office of the high priest. That is in John 17. He prays as a high priest would pray. In fact, that's why we call it the high priestly prayer. And the scriptures are laden with forecasting Jesus to be the high priest, and the New Testament shows him to be the high priest. But Hebrews in particular, unlike any other New Testament book, goes out of its way to continually refer to Jesus as the high priest. In this text, our great high priest, writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And you remember how the book starts, by comparing Christ to a number of people who are near and dear to the Jewish church. The prophets as a whole, Jesus is given uh, the declaration as being the ultimate prophet, the truth himself. The angelic beings who are credited with giving the law of God to the Jews, to the Ten Commandments and the writing on the stone and the delivery of all those laws and statutes that are therein. A high place angel, sometimes a wrongfully high place angels had in the Jewish church. Yet Jesus is told to be or declared to be the creator of those angels, to be worshipped unlike the angels who are just servants of God. And then Moses... Moses, that's sacred ground. You're talking about Moses, the prophet of prophets, and Jesus is more glorious even than Moses. Even Joshua, even Joshua lacked the glory of Christ. And so Christ is compared regularly throughout these first four chapters with different individuals who are, have done great things for God's kingdom, but yet when you come down to comparison, there is none because Christ is more glorious and superior to all. Now... In chapter 4, in these verses 14 through 16, it gets that much more personal. Yes, it's still speaking about our great high priest, that is, the people of God's great high priest, but there's a specific personal application when you consider the exact ministry that the priest would have. Consider for a moment with me what it is to be a great high priest. What was the priestly role? Now, I warn you, next chapter, 5, 1 through 10, is all about the priesthood. In fact, we're going to spend significant time looking at this parallel between the priesthood and Jesus. But for this moment, just in a general way, realize what a priest did so as to understand what it is to say that Jesus is our great high priest. First of all, what did a priest do primarily? What was his job? Twofold. Represent the people and intercede for them. Represent by way of bringing the sacrifice and intercede by way of praying for the people representation and intercession. That's what priests did. They would bring the sacrifice before God that the people gave, representing the people, and they would then go about praying consistently and constantly interceding before the throne of grace for the people of God. That's the basic twofold job of the priest, representation 
and intercession. This is why Hebrews 2 verse 17 refers to Jesus in this way. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And here again, he's referred to as the great high priest and will be ten more times in this book. A priest represents and intercedes for the people. This is an important facet of the priestly ministry to understand, to best appreciate what it is the priest was to do for the people of God. In fact, when the priesthood was just announced, Aaron, the first high priest, listened to the words of Scripture regarding Aaron, what he had to do, what his role was as a priest. Exodus 28, 29, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. So he bears the people's burdens. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. That's Exodus 28, 29. The role of bearing the burden of the people, representing the people, and then bringing them to the remembrance of God, interceding for them. Priest represents and intercedes for the people of God. Well, what about the high priest? That's the priestly role. And every priest had that function of representing and interceding. But the high priest was even more elite. There was just one high priest, the chief among priests. What was his job? This is key. Once a year, the high priest, and the high priest alone, on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, would enter into the the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle first in the old days, before the temple, and then in the temple later, the Holy of Holies, that part of the temple that was set off with a veil, a huge thick veil that separated. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and it represented the presence of God. So this wall between the people and the presence of God, it was a vivid illustration of how our sin, like this wall, separates us from the presence of God. So once a, year, once a year, the high priest, and the high priest alone, would enter into the Holy of Holies after making sacrifice for his own sins. Then he would enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and present the blood as a representation, the punishment for the sins of the people. He'd represent that, bring that forth into the Holy of Holies once a year to mark our need for atonement. As our representative, he passed through the veil, and he intercedes for us. With the blood. That's what the high priest does. In fact, the word for priest is Cohen. In fact, the Jewish surname Cohen, you may know people named Cohen, that actually means descended from Aaron. Cohen is servant or priest. This is what they did they served the people of God and they served God by representing them and interceding for them. Jesus is the great high priest. What does it mean to be the great high priest? We know what a priest does. We know what the high priest does. What does it mean to be a great high priest? Well, two reasons. First of all, and very pragmatically and right to the point of the people who are originally hearing this message of Hebrews, the priests of that time were not that great. Okay, there's a big difference. When you said priest to the average Jew in that day, they thought corruption. They thought, oh, them, those guys. So this is simply to differentiate Jesus from the priesthood of that day. Remember the priesthood of that day, Caiaphas? He was the chief prosecutor in the trial, the mock trial, the farce of a trial that convicted Christ. 
than during the time of the apostles, Annas or Ananias was, again, no better than Caiaphas, leading to the death of several of the apostles and the persecution and imprisonment of many. So a great high priest, first and foremost for the listener, differentiates Jesus from those priests that they had come to know and see. But it also means something more profound and something that transcends the ages. He's a great high priest in that he fulfills the office of the priesthood completely in himself. He brings an end to the need at this level for this kind of representation and this kind of intercession. He himself fulfills the office. He does it perfectly. He is able to enter the Holy of Holies. He enters into the Holy of Holies by his own merit. He does not need to make sacrifice for himself. So he goes in totally accepted. He walks through the veil. In fact, literally tears the veil and walks into the Holy of Holies. And based on his own merit, represents his people. And God accepts a sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, which is his own blood sacrifice. So he's a great high priest because he fulfills the office of the priesthood, the high priesthood, with himself. This is why he is a great high priest. This is why I love the words of our confession, which capture the Bible's teaching on this matter. How does, in question 25, Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Why is he called the great high priest? He fulfills the priestly office, the high priestly office. He's the great one, the last one, once. Why once? Well, human priests had to continually make sacrifices every year for their own sin. In fact, probably the minute after they left the Holy of Holies, they would need another sacrifice if they were ever to turn around and go back into it. Whereas Jesus never needs to make sacrifice for himself. So his sacrifice ends all need for further sacrifices. This is why he is a great high priest. So what? How does it matter, one might rightly ask. Look at the verses again in this light so we can see how it matters. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. First of all, it matters because Jesus, our great high priest, gained us direct access, direct access to God by a sacrifice. This is no small matter, direct access to God. Just as the high priest passed through the veil into the Holy of Holies, Jesus ultimately passes through the heavens. Where is he now? In the presence of God, seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. See, the temple and the tabernacle were just earthly pictures of a heavenly reality. It's not that it had no value, but what Jesus has done is brought an end to all this and given us direct access by passing through the heavens like it was the veil and into the presence of God, the true Holy of Holies. Now, if you are united to Christ by faith, you have direct access to God. You're united with God, and you are with God in Christ. So you have direct access. I don't care how old you are, where you are on your spiritual journey. You have the same access to the throne room of God as I have or anyone else has who is in Christ. And you can go directly there. So there's no need for a mediator beyond Christ, only 
to enter in with Christ to the Holy of Holies. He is our great high priest, and he has gained us direct access to God by a sacrifice. This significance means everything. In fact, this is what Jesus refers to when, or the scriptures refer to about Christ when he's on the cross. And of all that we read in the cross narrative, I wonder how often we pass over this lightly. But listen to Matthew 27, 50 through 51, and consider the significance in light of the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus on the cross, he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. At the same moment God accepts Christ as a sacrifice, he tears the temple veil in two so you can go in. So you can go directly in. You don't need a priest anymore. You have a great high priest who has gained you direct access and literally tore this huge, thick veil in two in the temple. This is what Paul refers to in Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He removes it so that you can have direct access to God. In fact, I think one way we can all relate with this broken fellowship is that invisible wall that comes up between us at times. You know, you've had in your relationship, your, whether it be your marital relationship, your, mar- your relationship with your children, relationship with co-workers, people, brothers and sisters in the church, where something happened between you. Maybe you sinned against them. Maybe they sinned against you. But there's this unspoken wall, and we all know what I'm saying, this unspoken wall between us. We could be in the same room, but there's like this big pink elephant in the corner that you don't want to address, and it's awkward. You feel clumsy. You feel strange around someone who you've known for the majority of your life, maybe. In this wall, until it is dealt with, and it can be painful to deal with it, until it is dealt with, this wall stays up, communication breaks down, and you grow further and further apart from this person. Can we relate? Well, this is the wall, and it was ever more thicker between us and the Lord. And until Jesus took the dividing wall down, we could be nothing but awkward before God. In fact, we would grow wider and wider. As the chasm grew, we would become madder and madder and more angry, and we would shake our fist at God if we were left with this wall between us. But when Jesus lifts the wall by his death on the cross, we now have direct access and fellowship with God. And even in our shame, we're able to draw near to the throne of grace because we know what Christ has done for us. Jesus, our great high priest, gained us direct access to God by a sacrifice. But it also matters that he's our great high priest for another reason. Our great high priest understands, this blows me away, he understands our temptations and has provided victory over them. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And by the way, remember, the person living in that day had the same view about the priesthood as I just described about politics. These were people who were career priests in the sense that they were distant from the people. They lived really well in a time when people in general weren't living really well. And there was a distance. So to say this about Christ, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Christ 
has been tempted in every respect like us. Wait a minute, it has to be your answer. If you're honest, you've got to say, wait a minute. Christ never was tempted to be angry with his children. Christ was never tempted to be angry with his spouse. Christ never dealt with the temptations to sin in old age when disease and other things creep in. We would rightly say that. But that's not what the text is saying. The text is speaking in the broad categories of temptation that assail every human being. Jesus has experienced them all. And if we're honest, no two of you have ever experienced the same temptation exactly the same way. That's impossible. We all deal with the same broad categories of temptation, but given all the complexities that make you up as a person, you will be confronted with a temptation and respond or have a different level of struggle than someone else. A level only God knows the difference. So it's not saying that in every particular way Jesus has been tempted, but in every general, broad categorical term, Jesus has experienced temptation just the way you and I have. Tempted to eat too much or too often? Christ had that option before him. That's what a temptation is. The option to choose sin or not. Right? Tempted to commit adultery in your heart. Jesus had that temptation laid before him. Tempted to covet another person's position or possessions. Jesus had that before him. Tempted to be angry with someone. Certainly, Jesus had that before him. Tempted by material things, to be greedy. Certainly, those things were before Christ as well. In all ways, in all respects, tempted as we are, yet, here's the difference, yet, without sin. If you're like me, when I think of temptation, I think immediately of sin. Because it's very difficult for me to, when I think of temptation, to think of not giving into it. It's tough because of my human condition. This is where it's different. Christ in all ways have been presented with the same opportunities, yet did not choose to sin. And as our representative, that now means we have the power to say no where we didn't have power to say it before, because he relates directly with us. In fact, this picture of Jesus being so human is really foreign in that day as it is today even. In the the development of the Jewish church at this time, especially the established Jewish church, the picture of God was that he is incapable of showing emotions or sharing feelings in any way with men. Obviously, the Old Testament shows a personal relationship, but the religion had morphed into such a thing that God was just outside, in a sense, kind of an ogre that had to be satisfied. So the idea that God could actually relate with us was revolutionary. And even in the secular thought of the day, the Greek Stoics a stoicism, which was the popular, predominant worldview of that time in that area, taught unequivocally that God was apathetic towards the world. And God may be out there, but he can't really personally be known. They taught that the supreme being did not feel. And so to say that Jesus, in all ways, tempted like we are, yet without sin, that he sympathizes with us, is certainly revolutionary. One author says that Jesus was exposed to the full range of human testing. In this experiential way, he acquired the empathy necessary for the discharge of the high priestly ministry of helping. Certainly, to some degree, as Christ is being tempted with the same things you and I, he recognizes how we have fallen to this. And this leads to understanding why it is that he would cry at Lazarus' tomb. It's, it's a complex crying that goes on there. It's not just because his friend has died. It's the human condition that has brought it about, that he recognizes and sympathizes with. 
because he's lived among us and has been confronted with the same things and recognizes we have not said no to those things. And he knows, being the creator, what that does to us when we say yes to the things God tells us to say no to. This is why when he looks at Jerusalem, he weeps because he identifies with the suffering of people. Jesus, our great high priest, understands our temptations and has provided us victory. Also, I would point out, not only has he gained us direct access to God and not only has he the ability to understand us, but also he has given us the strength to persevere. And that's really what these two exhortations that you will note in the text are about. Christ, our great high priest, giving us the ability to live out these two exhortations. You see, everything in Christ, everything about him as our mediator, everything he has done for you on your behalf is perfectly sufficient for your salvation, for your confidence, and for your assurance. So he can then give us the following exhortations. What are they? Look in the text. One, hold fast to our confession. Two, to draw near to the throne of grace. There are two exhortations in this, in this text. They would be impossible outside of Christ as our mediator. But because Christ is our great high priest, we can hold fast to our confession and we can draw near to the throne of grace. Let's consider those for a moment. First, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We are challenged to persevere throughout this book and quite frankly throughout the scriptures. But it is always based on Christ. Our ability to persevere is based on the ability of Christ to hold us. Perseverance is based on our confession. It is based on our belief in Christ. And a true confession has works. So our perseverance isn't in works. It's persevering in the faith. And a true faith will produce works. So it's right to say if there's no works, is there true faith? But what we are called to persevere in is faith in Christ. Hold fast to our works not what it says. Hold fast to our confession, because the author knows full well that a true confession will produce fruit. Hold fast to our confession. In fact, the confession of trust in God's redemption is a unifying theme throughout the scripture. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the Redeemer the same way we are saved by faith in the Redeemer. In fact, Job, who I think is one of the oldest books, if not the oldest book, pen says this in all the primitiveness of his revealed knowledge. Listen to what he says. Oh, that man with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This is a very developed understanding of his redemption and his ultimate bodily resurrection that will come because of the Redeemer. This is a true confession, and it's throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Their activity in the sacrificial system was simply a confession that they believed that God had to provide redemption. Then we come to the New Testament. Jesus says to his disciples, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who do you say I am, Jesus says. And that's what he says to you. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And for all Peter's many foibles, he got that much. And eventually that confession started working itself out in his life. 
And you can have a good confession. It doesn't mean you got it all together yet, brothers and sisters. It means over time that the truth of that confession bears fruit. Therefore, we can hold fast to the confession that is Christ is the Son of the living God. Jesus, on his way to raise Lazarus, says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he turns to Martha and says, do you believe this? And she holds fast to her confession and says, in the midst of her pain over the bereavement of losing the sole provider of her life, her older brother, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. She held fast to her confession. It was a real confession because in the most desperate of times it showed forth to be the rock that she clung to, her anchor. The book of Acts. The same Peter who had so many struggles. He preaches with boldness and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, and here's his confession, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then later in the same sermon, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Brothers and sisters, we do not persevere by works. We persevere by holding fast to our confession. Your confession, if it's right, will produce works. That's how they're related. If Christ, or if God, thought that our greatest need had been for information, he would have sent us an educator, it has been said. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist or a banker. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But the fact is and was... Our greatest need was for forgiveness because we're sinners. So he sent us a savior. That's our confession. Hold fast to it. Can I share for a moment my dream for the church? I think it's spirit-led. I don't say it to many people. I don't think I've even said it publicly to my wife. But this is my dream for the church as it relates to this simple call to the church to hold fast. Hold fast to our confession. Simply put, my dream and prayer for the church of Jesus Christ, first in the city, then in this country, and then in the world, world, the world wide over, is that the church of Christ would once again make a solid confession of who Jesus Christ is. It's that simple. But more particularly, let me lay out this dream for you in more particular terms. Two things regarding the church of Christ, and I especially challenge those of you, like Pastor Nathan and Lynn Marshall is here. We have Mike Hirschberger, Brett Lewis other men who believe they're being called to preach, particularly to them, I would say two things that I long to see in the church. One, that the pulpits in this land would be again emboldened to confess Christ. Christ first. Let's hold off for a while. Let's just say for five weeks, if every person who calls them a minister, of the God, a minister in the Christian church, if every one of those men would faithfully preach Christ for just five weeks, Hold off for a while on how to have a better marriage. Hold off for a while on how to raise your kids, how to manage your finances, how to be more successful. Hold off for just a little while about being purpose-driven or having your best life now. All those things may be spoken of in Scripture and dealt with. I'm not saying they're not. But let's just all hold off for a little while. Some of those ministers need to be born again first. And then when they're born again, let's preach Christ. 
And if we do that as ministers, those who are supposed to be the leaders of the church, will that not have an effect on the rest of the world? If we would preach Christ, if we would hold fast to our confession, and my confession is the same as Paul's, Christ and him crucified. I don't mean just one part about Christ that works in our culture. I mean everything about Christ. I mean the stink of our sin that causes him to go to the cross. If you don't preach Calvary, you're not preaching Christ. If you don't preach the bloodshed, you're not saying anything about the problem man has, which is sin. Oh, we may get rich. We may have more successful marriages. We may be purpose-driven. We may have our best life now, but let's have our Christ-driven life now. That's what we need. That's my dream, and I want to see it before I die. But you know what? It's not just to the men who are in the pulpits. They're supposed to be there. It's for you in the pew. I long for you to be freed from worrying about what your neighbors think about you. I long for you to be freed from wondering how many cars I need to have, what size house I need to have. His kid is in this or her kid does that. I long for you, the people of God, to be freed from that slavery and confess Christ is the one who is sufficient for you. To be freed from all the different things that society said. To not be afraid to be called a Jesus freak in its most biblical sense, an outsider. I long for the people of God, those sitting in the pews, to be emboldened to live and profess Christ before men and not think it's a great deal because you just didn't swear at work today. How low have we gotten when we think that if we just don't laugh at a dirty joke, then now we're witnesses for Christ. Let us be emboldened to hold fast to our confession in a public way. All of this comes fast to holding to our confession. Our confession is Christ. Oh, the power that would be unleashed, even if this small church would start to have from its pulpit that kind of regular preaching about Christ, and from its pews, people actually holding fast their confession. Imagine if some of these pastors, these huge churches, would actually come to Christ and start preaching him, preaching his word. Imagine what that would do. Just one week, one month, five weeks of preaching Christ, I think it would change the church. And if we want to go back after the five weeks to preaching about our marriage and preach, I don't think we will as such. Those things will be addressed, but I think you know what I'm saying. We'll go back to what the real problem on earth is, our sin and our need of a Savior, the dividing wall between us and God. And that confession will then begin to bear fruit in our hearts and our lives. Our first exhortation is to hold fast to our confession. Secondly, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Look at verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Christ, our great high priest, we have direct, unhindered access to the very throne room of God. You know that place that only the high priest can go? You have access to that now. And notice what it says. With confidence approach the throne. That means literally with bold frankness come to the throne. It means to enter the Holy of Holies with freedom and frankness, the ability to speak openly with your Father, come with confidence because of Christ, boldly into the throne of grace, in the way the King James says it. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what prompted Wesley, I believe, to write these words in his great hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. He says now, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You can come with that boldness because of the blood of Christ covering you. Why? That we might receive mercy and grace. We come boldly that we might receive mercy and grace. And the words are not exact in meaning. We use them interchangeably, mercy and grace, but they're not exact. Mercy is simply to withhold punishment you should have. 
That's to have mercy on someone. Grace is then to not just do that, but also give favor to those who deserve only wrath and judgment. Mercy and favor is what is given to us in Christ at the throne of grace. In time of need, I love that portion, because who among us will ever say that there's a time where we do not have need for mercy and grace? Do you see what it's saying? Be at the throne of grace always, not just in prayer and in communion with God's people, but always in the presence of God, knowing that he sees you, that he loves you, that he holds you, that he helps you, he brings you to conviction because he loves you. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why does it matter that Christ is our high priest? It matters because it allows us and causes us and invigorates us to hold fast to our confession, which is the truth about Christ, and it holds us and moves us to draw to the throne room of grace. The best picture I know in my own life of this is what I've observed with all of my children, but in particular my youngest child, who's two and a half. In Jordan's life, he's a little less secure than the older ones, and you can understand why. He's basically trying to survive with the other two older ones. But I noticed, and this just happened yesterday, it happens maybe on a weekly basis as we're at church gatherings or gatherings with large amounts of people that are a lot taller than him. He does fine for a while. He'll be playing or doing his own thing, but eventually the older kids kind of go and do their own thing, and you'll notice and watch Jordan, and he's kind of on his own. Then it dawns on him that he is alone that there's not someone directly relating with him. And he looks around and doesn't quite know you all the same way he knows mom and dad. And I can see him start looking. And I may not be watching at that moment, but I'll feel something wrapped around my leg. And I'll feel his head right near my knee. And I'll look down, and there he is, holding my leg, with his, his head against me, and he's perusing the room, and he's looking and seeing it. What this symbolizes to me is what you and I need to do with God. We look around and we see our lives. We see the things that are confronting us. We see it caving in on us sometimes. Or just that we don't understand what's happening. Or we're overwhelmed by our situation. Draw near to the throne room of grace. Go to the one who does understand you. The one who does sympathize with you. And he will never, ever push you away. He'll never say, get away from me. Or give you some kind of a backhand like an abusive parent would do. Instead, he takes you in. He actually longs, and you know, there's a delight I have when my son does it. Obviously, I want him to be independent. I want him to be, a, but he's two and a half. Come to daddy. You could come here. I'm so happy that he thinks there's a safe place there. Do you think God is your safe place? Do you think Christ has purchased that access to God? He has. He's our great high priest. We can come to him just the same way a two and a half year old seeks out his father in a large crowd prayer for you, the people of God, is that you would hold fast your confession, that you would draw near to the throne of grace because you can, because you have a great high priest. Let's pray.